Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for another Sabbath and another uh, day we not have to study. And we thank you that you've been with us so far this quarter. We ask that you will help us this quarter to do well, uh, to be able to manage our time and our schedules, busy though they are. And we ask that you'll be with us today as we engage in looking at the mediatorial work of Christ. We pray that your spirit will guide us and that we may fully understand the nature of this work. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're on uh, number three in this, so that's like the third, second, second page. Okay, and um, why don't you read starting the first one? Yeah, number three, and um, why don't we trade back and forth so that that way one mm-hmm. person doesn't have to read the second one. <laughs> Would you like me to start? Yes, I think. The widow's prayer: Avenge me, do me justice of mine adversary represents the prayer of God's children. Satan is their great adversary. He is the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before God day and night. Revelation 12.10 He is continually working to misrepresent and accuse, to deceive and destroy the people of God. And it is for deliverance from the power of Satan and his agents that in this parable Christ teaches his disciples to pray. And the prophecy of Zechariah, Zechariah is brought to view Satan's accusing work and the work of Christ in resisting the adversary of his people. The prophet said, He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. The people of God are here represented as a criminal on trial. Joshua, as high priest, is seeking for a blessing for his people who are in great affliction. While he is pleading before God, Satan is standing at his right hand as his adversary. He is accusing the children of God and making their case appear as desperate as possible. He presents before the Lord their evil doings and their defects. He shows their faults and failures, hoping they will appear of such a character in the eyes of Christ that he will render them no help in their great need. Joshua, as the representative of God's people, stands under condemnation, clothed with filthy garments. Aware of the sins of his people, he is weighed down with discouragement. Satan is pressing upon his soul a sense of guiltiness that makes him feel almost hopeless. Yet there he stands as suppliant while the Satan arrayed against him. The word of Satan as an accuser began in heaven. This has been his word on earth ever since man's fall, and will be his word in a special sense as we approach nearer to the close of this world's history. As he sees that his time is short, he will work with greater earnestness to deceive and destroy. He is angry when he sees the people on the earth who, even in their weakness and sinfulness, have respect to the law of Jehovah. He is determined that they shall not obey God. He delights in their unworthiness and have devices prepared for every soul, that all may be ensnared and separated from God. He seeks to accuse and condemn God and all who strive to carry out his purposes in this world in love, mercy and love, in compassion and forgiveness. Every manifestation of God's power for his people arouses the enmity of Satan. Every time God works in their behalf, 
Satan with his angels works with renewed vigor to compass their ruin. He is jealous of all who make Christ their strength. His object is to instigate evil, and when he has succeeded, throw all the blame upon the tempted ones. He points to their filthy garments, their defective characters. He presents their weakness and folly, their sins of ingratitude, their unlikeness to Christ, which have dishonored their Redeemer. All this he urges as an argument providing his right to work his will in their destruction. He endeavors to affright their souls with the thought that their case is hopeless, that the stain of their defilement can never be washed away. He hopes so to destroy their faith that they will yield fully to his temptations and turn from their allegiances to God. The Lord's people cannot of themselves answer the charges of Satan, and they look to themselves they are ready to despair. But they appeal to the divine advocate. They plead the merits of the Redeemer. God can be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. With confidence the Lord's children cry unto him to silence the accusations of Satan and bring to naught his devices. Do me justice of mine adversary, they pray, and with the mighty argument of the cross, Christ silences the bold accuser. The Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? When Satan seeks to cover the people of God with blankness and ruin them, Christ interposes. Although they have sinned, Christ has taken the guilt of their sins upon his own soul. He has snatched the race as a brand from the fire. But by his human nature he is linked with man, while through his divine nature he is one with the infinite God. Help is brought within reach of perishing souls. The adversary is rebuked. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, Let them sit a fair mitre upon his head, so that they may... So the Lord of hosts, the angel, made a solemn pledge to Joshua, the representative of God's people. If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts. And I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by, even among the angels that surround the throne of God. Notwithstanding the defects of the people of God, Christ does not turn away from the objects of his care. He has the power to change their raiment. He removes the filthy garments. He places upon the repenting, believing ones his own robe of righteousness and writes pardon against their names in the records of heaven. He confesses them as his before the heavenly universe. Satan is their adversary, shown to be an accuser and deceiver. God will do justice for his own elect. Who, who is the accuser then? It should be very clear. Satan. It isn't the father. So Once we establish that fact... Uh, it clears up a lot of potential misunderstanding among Christians that Jesus is up there pleading with the Father to forgive us and that we have a reluctant Father who says, oh, I, you know, your sins make me so angry. I, need, I, I would really rather punish. And, and Jesus says, oh, my blood, my blood, please, please forgive them. Uh, that sin scenario is just not present. Instead, it's Satan saying, you should destroy them. They don't deserve this, etc. And who does he accuse? Who, who who is he talking to when he accuses them? 
Did you pick up on that? Well, he does accuse them to Christ. Um, if you go back, let's see. If you go back to the third paragraph on the uh, beginning of this uh, statement, which would be page two or three. Um, third paragraph, the people of God are here represented as a criminal on trial. Joshua as high priest is seeking for the blessing of his people who are in great affliction. While he is pleading before God, Satan is standing at his right hand as his adversary. He is accusing the children of God and making their case appear as desperate as possible. He presents before the Lord their evil doings and their defects. He shows their faults and failures, hoping they will appear of such a character in the eyes of Christ that he will render them no help in their great need. But note what happens also in, in, the, in the two paragraphs down, every manifestation of God's power for his people arouses the enmity of Satan. His object, dropping down a sentence, is to instigate evil, and when he has succeeded, throw all the blame upon the tempted ones. It's all their fault that they listen to me. Um, and then go to the next paragraph. The Lord's people cannot of themselves answer the charges of Satan. As they look to themselves, they are ready to despair, but they appeal to the divine advocate. And so there's this, they, they say, do me justice of my, my adversary. There's this sense that Satan is accusing them to themselves. He's trying to convince them, don't, don't feel to Christ for help. You got yourself in this mess. You deserve what you're getting. That's, that's the thing that's going on here. And um, so, so this is, it's, it's almost like a virtual reality that we're talking about here where everybody is a player in it and everything, but we can't see all the players. We're the ones who can't see all the players. Everybody else can see the players. Okay, so they can see us, they can see one another, but we, we're set in this kind of this vacuum. We can't see Christ, we can't see the Father, we can't see the angels, we can't see the, the accuser. And so it's hard for us to get perspective. So this is an attempt to give us perspective so that we have the ability to plead that this is not, Satan is not right in this. This is not the way it should be. It looks like a lot of this is coming from Ze Zechariah. Mm -hmm. is, is Zechariah sort of like a, or at least part of Zechariah looks like Zechariah 3, is it kind of like a courtroom kind mm -hmm. of thing? Yeah, it is. That's interesting. I didn't know that uh -huh. before. Yeah, if you look at, at that particular chapter, it is set in the context of a, of a courtroom, and the courtroom is a sanctuary, which means that the sanctuary is really more tied to creation than it is, well, it's equally tied to creation and to law. And if we understand that the Ten Commandments, which are in the most holy place, are descriptive law rather than legal law, we're dealing with a cosmic court. And, and if you remember from study of the sanctuary, if you've ever read the description in Exodus, there are cherubim were woven in the walls. Well, obviously God doesn't have angels in the walls of heaven. But what that typifies is that the whole universe is involved. 
in this discussion about us. Um, and that's why Daniel 7, if you go to Daniel 7, there's this picture of thousands and ten thousands of beings around the throne of God, and the books are open and the court sits in judgment. So, so this is a cosmic court, and in God's cosmic court, anybody who has an accusation on anyone can come to that court and present that accusation. And, and I, I want to emphasize that because I think that a lot of things happen to us because other people go to God about us. Uh, maybe complaining. They hurt me. <laughs> you know, um, you should do something about them, God. You, you remember all the prayers of David, you know. <laughs> you, you read one of them in uh, church service. Uh, <laughs> angry. Yeah. Yeah. God... Wipe out these people. Wipe them out. Blot them out from the book of life. And and so anybody can do that. And instead of God just saying, no, I'm not going to listen to you. This is false, false. God is, has an open court. Okay, let's discuss this. Let's, let's talk about this. And, uh, of course, Satan comes in and, and accuses us before God. So there's, there's this whole... I almost think of it as a virtual reality, but it's real. It is actually the reality. We just can't see it. So uh, the foundation thing, uh, the foundation of this is that God is not... He and Christ are one in this picture. They are equally wanting to offset Satan's charges. But the, here's where I think the thing hinges on. If Satan can convince us by accusing us to ourselves that we are so bad that Christ can't help us or we deserve what we got we can't appeal to him he can shut our mouths and then Christ's hands are tied that's his goal we have nothing to fear if we open our mouths and refuse to be victims of his abuse of, of Satan's abuse uh, it's because we're such naturally, and this is again my model for sin is abuse. We're such naturally victims of abuse that we tend to wilt and, and give up and not persist uh, in praying through our situations and our problems and trials. Um, so this this is why I wanted to talk about these first before we go to her statements that sound much more forensic like Jesus is pleading the Father and, and so on. Do you have any questions about this statement before we move on? Anything you don't understand? Is, is Joshua the only God figure in, in these verses or is there, is he, because he's the high priest, but is there, is God there too? Is he sort of like the attorney or something? He's the high priest, and as the high priest, he represents the people to God. <coughs> now, who is our high priest? Jesus. He's our representative. And, and, and again, keeping in mind that this is a cosmic court, and God it convenes all of the representatives from all the planets, which are known as the sons of God in the Bible. Uh, and all of them come in this place and they uh, interact. And much of what, in terms of offsetting Satan's charges, Jesus is offsetting them and answering them to the angels. 
Because God is not a demanding God that says, okay, angels, I know you know how rotten these people are because you've had to interact with them on, on earth. But I want you out of the front gate to welcome them home and no questions. God doesn't run things that way. And so he, he's convincing them that we are safe to save. That because we put our trust in him and because we understand what, why Jesus had to die and what that means to us, uh, and we claim that for ourselves, he can, he can save us. Yeah. Okay, so in the cosmic court paradigm, is it, is it one in which runs by natural law, or is it one that is more like a traditional legal system of which it's imposed? Very good question. Yeah. Uh, very good question. I see it as as run by descriptive law. Yeah. And and here's the difference for me. The Questions in a in a legal court are settled by the more by the argument of the attorneys than by the evidence. That's true. The evidence is brought forward, and and a lot rests upon evidence, but it's all past evidence. Hmm. The cosmic court is experiential, and so the evidence is demonstrated evidence, hmm. and the angels watch what happens to us when the love of God embraces us and we respond to it and we accept it. it they watch the transformation take place. This is not something we do. And I want to make that very clear. Uh, they're not watching us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and earn our grave. Um, they're watching to see what the love of God can do for us as we respond to it. And consequently, on uh, it's demonstrated evidence, but all of that, what really is the demonstrated evidence is the evidence that Jesus demonstrated at the cross. That's the evidence that really stands in the court. Because without that, um, there's no proof that God can transform us. Because then there's n- the love of God is in question today. Uh, whether it can. Very good question. Yeah, it's it's hard, and I haven't fully, I haven't fully comprehended all the details. You know, I'm still working on that. Uh, it's hard to understand the difference between the two models yeah. when we get into a cosmic court setting. Uh, but uh, who's you have to ask who's the jury if you're going to have a legal court? Um, there really isn't a jury. It's settled by the evidence, by the truth. Okay, well let's um, move on to number four, and uh, I'm going to let you read next. In vision the prophet beholds Joshua the high priest, clothed with filthy garments, standing before the angel of the Lord, entreating God's mercy in behalf of his afflicted people. As he pleads for the fulfillment of God's promises, Satan stands up boldly to resist him. He points to the transgressions of Israel as a reason why they should not be restored to the favor of God. He claims them as his prey and demands that they be given into his hands. The high priest cannot defend himself or his people from Satan's accusations. He does not claim that Israel is free from fault. In filthy garments, symbolizing the sins of the people, which he bears as their representative, he stands before the angel, confessing their guilt, yet pointing to their repentance and humiliation. 
and relying upon the mercy of a sin-pardoning Redeemer, in faith he claims the promises of God. Then the angel, who is Christ himself, the Savior of sinners, puts to silence the accuser of his people, declaring, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that has chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Long had Israel remained in the furnace of affliction. Because of their sins, they had been well nigh consumed in the flame, kindled by Satan and his agents for their destruction. But God has, had now set his hand to bring them forth. As the intercession of Joshua is accepted, the command is given, Take away the filthy garments from him. And, the Josh, and, jo, and to Joshua the angel says, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with the change of raiment. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. His own sins and those of his people were pardoned. Israel was clothed with change of raiment, the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. The mitre placed upon Joshua's head was such as worn by the priests, and bore the inscription, Holiness to the Lord, signifying that notwithstanding his former transgressions, he was now qualified to minister before God in his sanctuary. The angel now declared to Joshua, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt um, always judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. If obedient, he should be honored as the judge or ruler over the temple and all its services. He should walk among attending angels, even in this life, and, that, and at last he should join the glorified throng around the throne of God. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For, behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch. In the branch the deliverer to come lay the hope of Israel. It was by faith in the coming Savior that Joshua and his people had received pardon. Through faith in Christ they had been restored to God's favor. By virtue of his merits, if they walked in his ways and kept his statutes, they would be men wondered at, honored as the chosen of heaven among the nations of the earth. As Satan accused Joshua and his people, so in all ages he accuses those who seek the mercy and favor of God. He is the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night. One over every soul that is rescued from the power of evil and whose name is registered in the Lamb's Book of Life, the controversy is repeated. Never is one received into the family of God without exciting the determined resistance of the enemy. But he who was the hope of Israel then, their defense, their justification, and redemption is the hope of the church today. As Satan accused Joshua and his people, so in all ages he accuses those who seek the mercy and favor of God. He is the accuser of our brethren, which accuse them before our God day and night. Over every soul that is rescued from the power of evil, and whose name is registered in the, book, in the Lamb's Book of Life, the controversy is repeated. Never is one received into the family of God without exciting the determined resistance of the enemy. For he who was the hope of Israel then, the defense, the justification, and redemption, is the hope of the church today. Satan knows that those who ask God for pardon and grace will obtain it. Therefore, he presents their sins before them to discourage them against those who are trying to obey God. He is constantly seeking occasions for complaints. 
even their best and most acceptable service to you, seeks to make appear corrupt. By countless devices, the most subtle and the most cruel, he endeavors to secure their condemnation. In his own strength, man cannot meet the charges of the enemy. In sin-stained garments, confessing his guilt, he stands before God. But Jesus, our advocate, presents an effectual plea in behalf of all who, by repentance and faith, have committed to keeping of their souls to him. He pleads their cause, and by the mighty arguments of cavalry, vanquishes their accuser. His perfect obedience to God's law has given him all power in heaven and in earth, and he claims from his father mercy and reconciliation for guilty man. To the accuser of his people he declares, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, these are the purchase of my blood, for I am plucked from the burning. And to those who rely on him in faith, he gives the assurance, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. All who put on the robe of Christ's righteousness will stand before him as chosen and faithful and true. Satan has no power to pluck them out of the hand of the Savior. Not one soul who in penitence and faith has claimed his protection will Christ permit to pass under the enemy's power. His word is pledged, Let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace. The promise given to Joshua is given to all. If thou wilt keep my charge, I will give thee places to walk among those that stand by. Angels of God will walk on either side of them, even in this world, and they will stand at last among the angels that surround the throne of God. Zechariah's vision of Joshua and the angels applies with peculiar force to the experience of God's people in the closing scenes of the great day of atonement. The remnant church will then be brought into great trial and distress. Those who keep the commandments of God and the, and the faith of Jesus will feel the ire of the dragon and his host. Satan numbers the world as his subjects. He has gained control even of many professing Christians. But here is a little company who are resisting his supremacy. If he could blot them from the earth, his triumph would be complete. As he influenced the <coughs> heathen nations to destroy Israel, so in the near future he will stir up the wicked powers of earth to destroy the people of God. Men will be required to render obedience to human edicts in violation of the divine law. Those who are true to God will be menaced, denounced, prescribed. They will be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends even unto death. Their only hope is in the mercy of God. Their only defense will be prayer. As Joshua pleaded before the angel, so the remnant church, with brokenness of heart and un unfaltering faith, will plead for pardon and deliverance through Jesus their advocate. They are fully conscious of their sinfulness of their lives. They, will, they see their weakness and unworthiness and they are ready to despair. The tempter stands by to accuse them as he stood by to resist Joshua. He points to their filthy garments, their defective characters. He presents their weakness and folly, their sins of ingratitude, their unlikeness to Christ, which has dishonored their Redeemer. He endeavors to affright them with the thought that their case is hopeless, that the stain of their defilement will never be washed away. He hopes to, so, to destroy their faith that they will yield to these temptations and turn from their allegiance to God. Satan has an accurate knowledge of the sins that he has tempted God's people to commit, and he urges his accusations against them, declaring that by their sins they have forfeited divine protection, and claiming that he has the right to destroy them. 
pronounces them just as deserving as himself of exclusion from the favor of God. Are these, he says, the people who are to take my place in heaven and the place of the angels who united with me? They profess to obey the law of God, but have they kept its precepts? Have they not been lovers of self more than lovers of God? Have they not placed their own interests above his service? Have they not loved the things of the world? Look at the sins that mark their lives. Behold their selfishness, their malice, their hatred for one another. Will God banish me and my angels from his presence yet reward those who have been guilty of the same things, same sins? Thou canst not do this, O Lord, in justice. Justice demands that the sentence be pronounced against them. But while the followers of Christ have sinned, they have not given themselves up to be controlled by the satanic agency. They have repented of their sins and have sought the Lord in humility and compassion. And the divine advocate pleads in their behalf. He who has been most abused by their ingratitude, who knows their sin and also their penitence, declares, The Lord the Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. I gave my life for these souls. They are graven upon the palms of my hands. They may have imperfections of character. They may have failed in their endeavors, but they have repented, and I have forgiven and accepted them. The assaults of Satan are strong. His delusions are subtle. But the Lord's eye is upon his people. Their affliction is great. The flames of the furnace seem to consume them. But Jesus will bring them forth as gold tried in the fire. Their earthliness will be removed, that through them the image of Christ may be perfectly revealed. At times the Lord may seem to have forgotten the perils of his church and the injury done by her enemy, done her by her enemy. But God has not forgotten. Nothing in this world is so dear to the heart of God as his church. It is not his will that worldly policy should corrupt her record. He shall he does not leave his people to be overcome by Satan's temptation. He will punish those who misrepresent him, but he will be gracious to all who sincerely repent. Those who call upon him for strength for the development of Christian character, he will give all needed help. In the time of the end, the people of God will sigh and cry for the abominations done in the land. With tears they will warn the wicked of their danger in trampling upon the divine law, and with unutterable sorrow they will humble themselves before the Lord in penitence. The wicked will mock their sorrow and ridicule their solemn appeals. But the anguish and humiliation of God's people is the unmistakable evidence that they are regaining the strength and nobility of character lost in consequence of sin. It is because they are drawing nearer to Christ, because their eyes are fixed on his perfect purity, that they discern so clearly the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Meekness and lowliness are the conditions of success and victory. A crown of glory awaits those who bow at the foot of the cross. God's faithful praying ones are, as it were, shut in with him. They themselves know not how securely they are shielded. Urged on by Satan, the rulers of this world are seeking to destroy them. But could the eyes of God's children be opened as were the eyes of Elisha's servant at Jotham, they would see angels of God camped about them, holding in check the hosts of darkness. As the people of God afflict their souls before him, pleading for purity of heart, the command is given. Take away the filthy garments, and the encouraging words are spoken. Are spoken. Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. The spotless robe of Christ's righteousness is placed upon the tried, tempted, and faithful children of God. The despised remnant are clothed in glorious apparel, never more to be defiled by the corruptions of the world. Their names are retained in the Lamb's Book of Life, enrolled among the faithful of all ages. They have resisted the wiles of the deceiver. They have not been turned from their loyalty by the dragon's roar.
Now they are eternally secure from the tempest of ice. Their sins are transferred to the originator of sin. A fair mitre is set upon their heads. While Satan has been urging his accusations, holy angels, unseen, have been passing to and fro, placing upon the faithful ones the seal of the living God. These are they that stand upon Mount Zion with the Lamb, having the Father's name written in their foreheads. They sing the new song before the throne, that song which no man can learn, save the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now is reached the complete fulfillment of the words of the angel. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee. For they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant as the branch. Christ is revealed as the Redeemer and Deliverer of his people. Now indeed are the remnant men wondered at, as the tears and humiliation of their pilgrimage give place to joy and honor in the presence of God and the Lamb. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion, and he that remaineth in Jerusalem, shall be called holy, even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. Hmm. Any questions? That was a long one. <laughs> now we're done with the document, and we can simply discuss it. I'd, I'd like to address your question another and from another perspective, Adam. Uh, you asked about is it a legal court or a, a cosmic court? There are shades of it that seem very legal, and that's because Satan is the legalist, mm. par excellence. Yeah, that's what it sounded like. He's the one that brings all these legal arguments. If you notice when she quotes him, um, and so when you're dealing with a legalist, you're going to end up in a kind of legal construct. But I see it from God's perspective as more like a family council. There's an issue in the family that has arisen, and we need to discuss it out. We need to hear every argument. We need to talk about it thoroughly. We need to look at all the evidence, and we need to hear what Jesus has to say about it. And uh, I, th I think that's more the, the statement. And, of course, that can easily lead us to say, well... You know, the father's still reluctant and unwilling to forgive. But I think, I think when we get to this issue in the Bible, we will find the Bible comes down as clearly as Ellen White in, in stating, no, uh, there is no difference between the father and the son. Uh, so we will be revisiting this. Uh, we're going to actually be revisiting everything. In the Bible, we're going to keep Ellen White out of the picture because there's been, a, there's been some interest... Um, with a group in, in the larger view, Oasis. I don't know if you're familiar with that on Facebook. This is, this is uh, where Christina heard about Pastor Wittes and, and all of that. <laughs> um, it, it's on this, it, it's a Facebook group that is ascribed to a more uh, dynamic, uh, relational uh, healing trust model as opposed to the legal model. And uh, 
there's been some some requests made on that that we need to do something for those who aren't Adventists who don't value Ellen White uh, to talk to them and, and I don't know if you're aware but this is a ministry that you're engaged in you're not just here for yourself uh, because we're recording this other people uh, are listening and I just uh, got an email that I'll share next week when more people are present again so this is this is going to be I think an exciting venture uh, that we've been at uh, so any, any other questions that you want to bring to this? Um, this these statements are pretty comprehensive and, and well uh, stated. Uh, there's a lot of questions that could be raised about the language that she uses. It, language is, is very much 18, 1800s language, you know, and, and uh, it's also very much uh, Bible language. And of course, uh, we'll have the opportunity to raise questions about that language when we go uh, into the biblical material. There are no more questions? I mean, you mentioned language, but I can, I, I'm willing to like grant her maybe a, a different view than we have just because of the time that she was in and the time that mm -hmm. she mm -hmm. ministered and spoke in. Mm -hmm. like, I don't know if we have to necessarily prove that she had the same view yeah. as we did, because I kind of doubt that that happened. Well, she has... She has certainly the view that God does not destroy the wicked. I think we saw those statements quite clearly on that. Um, she has the view that Jesus is not pleased with the Father to love us. She she makes that quite clear in the first statement that we read here in this. In this. The, the problem, I think, has come that she makes statements that sound different. Okay. And I, consequently, you talk to someone who doesn't believe the way we do, and you bring up her statements that validate what we believe and they will say what there are other statements that say it differently and and that's their their reason for not embracing uh, the statements where she does say it like we say it um, and they do the same thing with the Bible there you can go to the Bible and find statements that sound like God is arbitrary and angry and 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 destroying and, and all of that um, very clear statements it seems and then there are other statements that suggest otherwise. And that's what has led me to develop for inspiration a two-pronged hermeneutic of seeing uh, scripture, uh, recognizing, first of all, that all inspiration is both human and divine. And the language is human. The kind of words used, the kind of constructs, the logic is human. The way of reasoning is human. Um... And it's, you have to, for that reason, you have to study very carefully and not just base your whole view on one verse because no one passage of scripture gives us the whole picture, gives us the whole truth about God. And it, it's sort of like if you had a comprehensive panorama of the universe and, and somebody took a little square of it and blew it up for you as a poster, and said, so this is the universe. Would they be right? Yes and no. Yes and no. It, it's part of the universe, but suppose that little square that they picked was a horrible-looking part of the universe. It had no beauty to it at all. It was ugly. And you said, that's the universe? Yuck. 
But then you put it back into the whole panorama and you look you stand back from it and look at the whole panorama and go, Well, that's not ugly anymore. <laughs> I think that's what we're dealing with when we're dealing with scripture. And and I think we need to keep that in mind. Um, because what has what has come down to, and, and I'm very much against this kind of hermeneutic, is that my texts can, can, cancel out your texts, and my statements cancel out your statements. That's that's the kind of battle we're we're waging in the church, and it's a very unhealthy battle because it makes us select, selective. It makes us it makes our biases really do control what we pick and choose and, and what we look at. And this is why I'm taking you through this exercise where we look at both sides of what she says, both her legal type statements and, and the larger type statements, and we attempt to harmonize and, and try to find that common ground. Um, so that's, that's why. That was a great question because it kind of helps tie, us, tie it all together for us so that we're not just floundering, well, where are we going here? <laughs> And why don't we have prayer and we'll close. Father in heaven, we thank you that um, you are ever leading us to higher and higher ground and to greater and greater understanding. And that you have been working through the, the millennia through inspiration to lead us to that. And that consequently some statements in some periods of time seem dark and mysterious and, and very legal. And statements in other periods of time seem bright and beautiful. We ask that we may put it all together and you help us to see and understand and get behind the humanness and legality of language to the truth. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.